Exodus 23, 1 through 19. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be part be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see a donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked and you shall not and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt for six years. You shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave in the uh, leave, the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days and at an appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear for me, appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of in, in gathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field of the fruit of your labor, three times in the year you shall, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, we have reached the part of Exodus that people usually skip over. Because that was a long list of rules right there, wasn't it? And the people, people skip over this section of Exodus for a few of them. First of all, um, one of the things that is a tendency that we human beings tend to acquire in childhood and never grow out of is when we see a list of rules, our hearts don't leap for joy, right? We start thinking, man, this is not exciting. I don't want somebody else telling me what to do. Second of all, if we've been Christians for a while, when we get to some of these sections in what we call the law of Moses, We might think about some things that Jesus and especially the Apostle Paul says in which they're emphasizing this beautiful point, which is the law of Moses cannot save you. Sinners cannot get right with God by keeping the commands. The law of Moses reveals to us the sinful condition of our own 
heart. But the only way we could be saved and be right with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the son of God who died for us and rose again. So we might be thinking, what's the point of of reading this text of scripture? And finally, even if we were convinced that it would be a good idea to study and try to obey some things that are in the laws of Moses, you get to verses like 19, you just don't know what to do with it. I mean, the last part of our text today said, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's take a poll. Who this week has been struggling with the temptation to boil a young goat in its mother's milk? <laughs> we got one. I see two hands. Okay. I'm actually surprised <laughs> that much buy-in on this one. Um, I have personally been tempted by many sins, but not that one, right? And if... If I did have the inclination to boil young goat in its mother's milk, I wouldn't understand what was wrong with it. Right. So, in other words, when we read some of these Old Testament commandments, our first reaction is just this is strange. I don't understand what to do with it. And so if we're trying to be disciplined Christians following Jesus, reading through our Bible reading plan, when we get to this part, we go fast. Maybe put it on the audio Bible two times speed. Right. And let's get through this so we can get to the Psalms. The Psalms are coming down the road for that. You get Samuel, some great stories in there. So. I understand why generally churches tend to skip over these texts when they're preaching it. But what I want to suggest to you is that there's some stuff that God wants to teach us in this text. Because the commandments of God in the Old Testament, though our relationship with them is complicated and, and everything that we read here, we need to filter through God's further revelation in Jesus Christ and through the new covenant that we've entered into. And we need to remember that keeping these laws can never save us. We can only be saved by grace through faith. And yet these commandments can teach us some wisdom to learn. Okay, now that Jesus Christ, by grace, has made us the holy, beloved, chosen people of God. How do we live as holy people in God's world? And in this text, the themes emphasized here are that people, God's holy people live lifestyles of joyful celebration. Celebrating the goodness of God and we live lifestyles of justice, treating people with justice and being God's agents of justice in the world. So we're going to talk about these three words. Here's the three words today. Everybody say holiness. Holiness. Everybody say justice. Justice. Everybody say celebration. Celebration. With those three words in, in our minds, let's bow our heads real quick to pray and ask God to speak to us. Our Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. From our sin. We needed to be saved. We could not save ourselves. We thank you for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness of sins. And this morning I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Please help me to speak with clarity. With truth. With boldness. With humility. With accuracy Lord. And I pray for all of us here. That you would open our ears to hear your word. Some parts of scripture. That maybe we've had a hard time connecting with before, I pray that today you would do a mighty work to help us to read your Bible for all it's worth, that you would help us to be excited about the adventure of holiness, pursuing Jesus Christ with everything that we are, that you'd help us to be excited about the the rhythm of life that you invite us into celebrating your goodness and the holy calling you've placed upon us to be your agents of justice in the world. So, um, Lord, I pray that there would My words would not be human words merely, but that you would help me to faithfully unfold your words, O God, that you would speak to us and that we would hear and be transformed in Jesus name. Amen. Now, first, I want to talk about this word holiness that I use. Holiness is one of the big 
words in the book of Exodus. And we've talked especially about the fact that God is holy. The basic meaning of the word holy is set apart. So when we say God is holy, we're saying God is set apart from anything else. He's the creator and everything else is creatures. So God's power is unlike any other power. God's love is in a category of its own. God is absolutely pure and good. There's no evil in him at all. He's absolutely holy and unique. And now what we're talking about, though, is that the holy God, by grace, has called his people to be a holy people. Now, when we're talking about us as a holy people, we're talking first and foremost about the gift of God's grace that he chose us and said, you are now set apart. That's the key word. Everybody say set apart. You are now set apart for God, which means also you're set apart from evil. And from all the evil ways of the world, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, not only did God forgive your sins, but God adopted you into his family. Your identity in Christ is now that you're a son or a daughter of the king. And as a son and daughter of the king, you're called to live a different way of life. So when we're talking about a holy lifestyle, we're talking about living in the world in such a way that our attitudes, our words and our actions reflect our identity as the chosen people of God. Now, you see this emphasized a couple places in this text. Look with me at verse two. Here's a powerful statement. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You might just want to underline that phrase. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Now, the specific context here, as we'll see in a moment, is, is talking about a lawsuit. It's talking about true justice versus mob justice. But the principle here is much broader, which is to say in the world, people in general, the crowd tends to do a lot of evil. And as God's people who are set apart for God, we're called to be different. This is what our kids call peer pressure, right? Peer pressure. If you see it on TV that everybody's living for money, sex and power, you don't live that way. If you see it in the world that when marriage gets hard, people give up on their marriage. You don't live that way. If you see people living in such a way that I'm pursuing my self-interest at the expense of others, God is saying, you don't live that way. You do not fall in with the many to do evil. Don't go with the flow. Become a person who is set apart for God. The theme comes again in verse 13. If you'll drop your eyes down in the text a few verses. Verse 13 says this. God says, pay attention to all that I have said to you. That's what we prayed a second ago. God, help us pay attention to your word. Listen to the word of God. And then God says, make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. You see, the people of Israel are set apart for the one true God. And yet they're going to now live in a place where they're surrounded by nations that worship all kinds of fake gods. And the pressure to fit in is going to be intense. The pressure to be like the other nations. As a matter of fact, as we keep reading through our Old Testament, we find over and over that the people of Israel do succumb to this temptation and they start worshiping and naming other gods. They start worshiping Baal or Asherah or these other gods of the pagan nations. And sometimes they're forsaking God altogether, the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in order to worship false gods. But sometimes they're saying we're going to worship the true God and some other gods, too. Why not? The more the merrier. Let's get the benefit. They're trying to blend into the nations in their spiritual life, how they relate to God and in their ethical life, how they relate to other people. And God says, you must not be like that. If you're going to be a Christian, you're called to be holy, which in 
part means you've got to dare to be different. Don't go with the flow. The way Paul talks about this in Romans 12, after reflecting on the beautiful good news of God's mercy through Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so we could be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul tells us that in view of God's mercy, now we're supposed to offer our whole lives as worship to God. And then in Romans 12, too, he says this, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So everybody say, don't be conformed. It means dare to be different. Go against the flow of the world. Be holy. Now, this idea of holiness is one that doesn't necessarily have a positive ring in our culture. As a matter of fact, I think that when people in our culture think about living a holy lifestyle, they are mostly thinking about strict religious people who refuse to enjoy the pleasures that normal people enjoy in order to make their life bearable. That's how the world tends to think about holiness, right? And if you've got that idea in your mind today, one of the things I'm praying is that the word of God will just explode that idea. If you think of holiness in this way, holiness primarily means you don't do the fun things that everybody else does because you're a religious, strict person. If you think of it that way, then living a holy lifestyle is going to be seen by you as a terrible burden. But that is a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the truth. What the Bible teaches is that a lifestyle of holiness is a lifestyle of freedom and joy. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't be like the world. Don't go in that way of death. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. A lifestyle of holiness is a lifestyle of freedom, of love, and of joy, in which we receive God's good gifts and enjoy God's good gifts, but we don't distort them in a way that destroys human life. Now, living a holy lifestyle does involve what we're reading here. Don't don't do evil like everybody else is doing. It does involve saying no. To certain abuses of God's good gifts in a way that destroys life, we could just think of a simple one, right? Food and drink are good gifts from God. Amen. But you can distort those through gluttony, through drunkenness in a way that can quickly destroy life. It can destroy your health. It can hurt other people. Or sex is created by God. It's a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage that brings children into the world and and deepens our commitment to one another as husband and wife. But God knows all you got to do is look around in our culture and you see everywhere that this good gift has been twisted and distorted in a way that people talk about as liberating. But in fact, it's ripping our culture apart as families are ripped apart by infidelity and as sexual abuse is rampant within our culture and so on and so forth. God's good gifts can be distorted by sin, and the holy lifestyle does mean saying no to those distortions. But much more important than that, no, is that holiness is calling us to say yes to God. The positive call to be set apart for God is more foundational than the negative call to be set apart from the world. Did you catch that? To be holy does mean being set apart from the world, but more than that, it means being set apart for God, which is to say When we learn to live a holy lifestyle, that means we're learning to live every moment of every day, enjoying relationship with Jesus Christ in a way that transforms us from the inside out so that we become people of love, justice, truth and joy. Instead of being people of bitterness, falsehood, injustice and despair. Now, which one of those lists sounds better to you? 
The first one sounds better. And yet Satan is so good at deceiving that he's got people convinced that holiness is boring. Right. What we're saying is that holiness is about a lifestyle of freedom and joy. Now, as followers of Jesus, I've already mentioned the fact that we face some challenges when we read this text, because you might be thinking, OK, that's good. God's called us to a holy lifestyle to have a relationship with Jesus. But that still doesn't resolve all my questions about how am I supposed to read a passage like Exodus 23? Here's some questions that might be popping up in your mind. Isn't it true that we are saved by grace and not by works of the law? Let's take a, a see if anybody knows the answer. Is that true? We're saved by grace, not by works of the law. Good answer. Good answer. We're saved by grace, not by works of the law. So let's just get this clear. Is John Mark preaching today about the fact that if you keep all these rules, especially the one about the goat and the milk, that that will earn a good relationship with God for you? Is that what we're saying? No, nobody can earn a good relationship with God. A good relationship with God is a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. But then we might ask the follow up question, in which case doesn't studying the law of God encourage some kind of legalism that distracts us from the gospel of Jesus? After all, weren't the Pharisees really obsessed with these rules of that Moses gave? They were obsessed with the laws of Moses. They said, let's nitpick about how to keep all those rules. And I would say that there is a danger here, but I want to counter this with two New Testament texts. If you've got a Bible, you might flip to the New Testament. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can just listen. But first, I want to go to a text that for some of us might be very familiar. For others, it might be new. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, let me start with verse 8, which says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Now, when we say grace, that's a key word in our Bibles. Everybody say grace. Grace Grace just means undeserved kindness. God shows us kindness and favor that we could not earn, that we do not deserve. Every one of us has broken God's law. We deserve punishment. And if any of us is going to be a friend of God, if any of us is going to go to heaven when we die, it's only by God's grace. We cannot earn it. It's got to be a gift given to us. And it says... That by grace, Christians are saved through faith. That's the other key word. So everybody say faith. Faith just means trusting Jesus Christ. Jesus on his cross took the punishment. He bore my sin and your sin. He took the punishment for all the bad things that we did. So that if we very simply trust in Jesus, the Bible says we're united with Jesus in such a way that my sins have already been punished on the cross of Christ. And then I have risen with Christ to a new life that I don't have to live in sin anymore. I didn't earn it. It was a pure gift of God. And it was a gift of God that I received, not by rule keeping, but by simply trusting in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you know you're living in sin and not right with God, here's all you got to do to get right with God and start on your journey with Jesus right now in your heart. Say, Jesus is Lord. I trust in Jesus Christ. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. That's the beginning And it goes on, the text goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. You don't earn it, it's a gift. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we can't say, I'm a good person, I've obeyed God's commandments, therefore I'm right with God. As a matter of fact, when Christians act like that, we're proving that we haven't even begun to understand the gospel. Here's what it really means to be a Christian. It really means to confess, I deserve God's judgment. I have sinned. I have chosen evil again and again and again. But God and his mercy has rescued me through Jesus Christ. 
And because of that, I love him and I want to live my life sharing his love with others. That's what it means to be a Christian. But listen to the next verse. You don't get saved by works, but listen to what the next verse says. For we are his worksmanship. That means if you've trusted Christ, now God has made you into his worksmanship, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. That's what the word means. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is this saying? You don't get saved by good works, but there's a sense in which you do get saved for good works. Can I say that again? You don't get saved by good works, but there's a sense in which you do get saved for good works. In other words, you can never do enough good stuff to get right with God. That's just a pure gift of grace. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is not only that God forgives your sins so you can go to heaven one day. The good news of the gospel is God says you don't have to keep living in sin anymore. Those self-destructive patterns of selfishness and greed and pride that have dominated your life, you can be done with that. Your addiction that's dominated your family for four years, that cycle can be broken today. The, the sin that constrained you can be gone. Moreover, you now have a positive purpose, not just that you don't have to do evil, but you can become God's change agent to bring his good into the world. God has called you to do good works. Now you have purpose and you have power from God to live redemptively. To bring his mercy and peace and healing into the world. Now we got to ask the question, okay, what are the good works we got to do? This leads me to another New Testament passage. If you got your Bible, flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Another very familiar passage for some of us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It's talking about the Bible. It's God's inspired word. And here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, those two words, all scripture, are very important. All scripture. Everybody say all scripture. Does it say the gospels and the psalms are breathed out by God and Exodus is okay? Is that what it says? Does it say Leviticus is sort of good and the rest of the Bible is breathed out by God? Just checking. All scripture, right? It's all from God. He inspired it. And now look what it goes on to say about all scripture. All scripture is breathed out God and is profitable. It's good for you. It's healthy. It's useful. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the person of God, man or woman, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Which means if you want to be equipped for every good work so that you can fulfill God's purpose for you in the world, you need all of Scripture to teach you and to train you. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, okay, that sounds good, but... This is the law of Moses. Aren't we in the new covenant now? Hasn't the law of Moses been fulfilled? And if it has been fulfilled, then what am I supposed to learn from it as a Christian in the 21st century? Now, that's a big question. And this morning I deleted from my notes a sub point, which was really probably two extra sermons. So thanks be to God. I deleted it this morning about this point. But uh, if you want to hear that later, just buy me a cup of coffee. Embrace yourself for a few hours. It's going to be good. We're going to walk through Galatians. It's going to be wonderful. But let me just summarize a few points for you. The law of Moses has been fulfilled for us in Christ. And we are in a new covenant. Now, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned to you that Christians throughout the years have kind of usefully divided these laws and books like Exodus into three categories in order to talk about how they relate to us as Christians. I want to review this real quick just so it's fresh in your mind before we move forward to talk about justice and celebration. Okay. Let's just review this. In the Old Testament, there are 
ceremonial laws, ceremonial laws. Now, that would include stuff like um, the sacrificial system. People would sacrifice animals, um, sacrifices of atonement, peace offerings, all kinds of offerings. That would include kosher food laws. Don't eat pork, that kind of a thing. That would include some of the things that are mentioned in our text today. For example, in verses uh, 14 through 19, we mentioned these three holidays. I'll say a few more words about them in a minute. But these were holy days, festivals that Israel celebrated every year. And what the New Testament teaches is that all of that is valuable as a signpost pointing us forward to Jesus in one way or another. But Jesus has fulfilled those laws in such a way that uh, we no longer have to practice them. We just need to understand what they're teaching us about Jesus. So it's fine. If you want to abstain from eating pork, that's fine. But just don't do it out of obedience to God because Jesus said all food is clean, right? Don't feel morally superior when you do it either. And don't be self-righteous. If you want to celebrate the Passover with your family, that's great. You can do it. Just don't think that you're required by God's law to do it. Because various parts of the New Testament teach that those things have been fulfilled. Some of the aspects of the ceremonial law, it would be wrong to practice now. For example, you don't want to make animal sacrifices for your atonement anymore. Because that pointed forward to the cross of Jesus, the once and for all time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is fulfilled. So we don't make sacrifices anymore. That's a ceremonial law. The next part of the law is what we might call um, the, the juridical law. This was about... Um, Israel as a nation, their criminal justice system. Right. And we are not under that law anymore in the new covenant. As we reflect on it, we might learn some principles of right and wrong that could be helpful for us. But we're not under that law. But the third category of the law is one we're mostly going to talk about today, which is the moral law. Everybody say moral law. And that's just teaching us right from wrong. And this is still useful to us in a couple of ways. First of all, as we reflect on the moral law our sinfulness is revealed. It's like a mirror. Anybody ever walk past a mirror in the middle of the day and have this moment where you're like, I've been looking like that all day. I've had that moment frequently. This is like my hair. It's got a mind of its own. How did that happen? Right. Um, and just looking in the mirror. Uh oh. Sometimes we pick up our Bible thinking I want a devotional thought about God's love. But what God wants us to do is look in the mirror and see the stuff on our face. Right. When we read the law of God, he shows us our sin out of love. And when when our sin is exposed, this leads us back to the cross in which we say, God, I need your mercy. God, I need your mercy. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. That's one of the uses for the law. But this this other use is that not only is our sin exposed, but as people who have trusted in Jesus, that now we want to learn how to love God and love our neighbors. We need help learning how to do that. You ever been in a situation where you're like, I want to do what's right, but I don't know how. God knows I've been in that situation a lot. And the Bible is here to teach us wisdom. The moral law can help us grow in wisdom that we know how to do it. So with those ideas in mind now, let's talk about the other two themes, the main two themes that are in our text, which are these themes of justice and celebration. First, let's talk about justice. Everybody say justice. Now, the word justice shows up a couple times in our text, and it comes up with the negative warning, don't pervert justice. Look at verse 2. We read the first part of this. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Don't pervert justice. Another way of saying don't be unjust or to put it positively, be just, do justice. 
In verse 6, we read again, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor. Again, it's talking about in a lawsuit here. Again, the word oppress shows up in verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. That's that Hebrew word ger, which means like an immigrant or a foreigner or an ethnic minority. It says don't oppress the immigrant. That means don't abuse their vulnerable state to take advantage of them and treat them badly. That's the opposite of justice, right? Now, these negative prohibitions here imply the positive command to do just, which the whole Bible emphasizes as an important part of what it means to live as a Christian. Let me just read through a few verses for you. I would encourage you not to try to flip to them because I'm going to go too fast. You might jot down the references if you want to look them up later. Let's start in the law of Moses. Hear about how important justice is to God. Look what look how God is described in Deuteronomy 32 4. the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God is just. That means he always does what is right. He always treats all human beings with dignity and he always defends those who are exploited and oppressed. Late, uh, earlier in Deuteronomy, verse Chapter 16, verse 20 says this justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What about if we move to the writings, the wisdom writings and the Psalms? Well, justice is all over the place. I'll just read you a couple examples. Psalm 82, three says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Christians, people of God, are called to give justice. Here, it's being, it's emphasizing there's people who are weak and hurting and vulnerable in your society. You need to defend them and help them. And that's called justice. What about Proverbs? Proverbs says a lot about justice. Let me just read you one verse. Proverbs 21, verse 3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. What about the prophets? Well, the prophets of the Old Testament are filled with justice. Let me just give you one famous verse. Micah 6, 8. Some of you know it says this, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What about in the New Testament? Is justice like an Old Testament thing that's replaced with grace in the New Testament? Sometimes people say that and it's completely wrong. The theme of justice shows up a lot in the New Testament and the concept of justice is frequently there, even if the language isn't. But let me just give you one statement from Jesus when he's rebuking religious hypocrites. He says this. Luke eleven forty two. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says you're very religious. You care a lot about tithing, which I'm not opposed to tithing. Thanks be to God. He said, don't neglect that. But he says here, what's more important is that you love God and that you do justice in your relationships with one another. So justice is a key biblical theme, and we really cannot follow Christ without practicing justice. The two are connected in a way that uh, we can't disconnect. Now, this leads us, though, to a problem, because in the world, people use the word justice to mean all sorts of crazy stuff. Amen. Our concept of justice, thus, needs to come from Scripture and not from the world. This was true of the ancient Israelites. They lived in a culture in which, in the name of justice, people would do all sorts of ruthless, horrible things. And it's definitely true for us. Can I just have real talk for a moment with everybody here about this theme? I think we face a very serious temptation in America right now. The Church of Jesus Christ does. 
to pervert the biblical concept of justice, often unintentionally, by getting the language of justice from the Bible and then filling in the meaning of the concept with stuff that comes either from the political right or from the political left. Now, what the Bible says is don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, I mean, maybe I'm offending somebody, but it just seems like basic common sense. If we're Christians, we should maybe get our concept of justice from Jesus in the Bible instead of Twitter, Facebook and cable news. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? In our culture, justice in some camps. Uh, well, actually, let's just say this. Instead of me getting into a political analysis, let's just say that in the world, justice often means just us. Right. Treat my people the way that we want to be treated. And ignore the situation of other people. The atheistic philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said something that was profoundly true when he said, if you look around the world, usually when people use the word justice, what they really mean is I want power. And let me tell you uh, what they mean by that. Now, that's true. And yet in Christ, we find that there is a true justice, which is God's justice, which is on his heart. And that's what we need to understand. In these verses, we get a few pointers To what a true biblical justice would mean. Let me just go through a a few of them for you. First of all, justice here is connected with kindness and generosity to all people, including our enemies. Now, that statement right there just automatically subverts almost everything that people mean by justice in our culture right now. Your enemies need to be treated with kindness because they have dignity as image bearers of God. Look at verses four through five here. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, we don't live in agrarian culture, so you probably don't see a lot of donkeys walking down the road. But here's what it's saying. If your enemy is in trouble and you could help him, but it would be really inconvenient for you to do so. Do it anyway. Now, can we be real about the fact that we don't even like to do this for our friends? You know what I'm talking about. Saturday comes. You had a long work week. You worked 50, 60 hours. And then in the evenings, you came and taught Bible studies at two apartment Bible studies. You were listening to that sermon on Sabbath from a few weeks ago on repeat. I'm just going to rest and enjoy the Lord today. Right. And then you get a text from your friend and you know he needs your help from somebody. And you throw your phone across the room. Right. All those of us have been there. Your friend is in need. And you think, I don't want to help him because it's inconvenient. This is, this is, this is not, I mean, this is not Jesus walking around Galilee. This is the Old Testament. This is Moses. And he says, if, if that happens to you and it's your enemy, go help him. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God, including your enemy. We treat all people with dignity. We learn from this text that God's justice frequently emphasizes a special concern for vulnerable people like widows, immigrants, the fatherless and the poor. They're vulnerable because they can easily be taken advantage of. And this you see it, for example, in verse six, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. You see it in verse nine, you shall not oppress a sojourner or an immigrant or the ethnic minority. You know the heart of a sojourner. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Over and over throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find these groups being mentioned together. The widow, the fatherless, the poor, um, the, the immigrant. Sometimes we, we read about various people who are disabled in different ways. The lame and the blind. 
And over and over, God says he loves those people. He has compassion on them. He cares for them. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we're supposed to care for them. Now, that means actively doing good for them in whatever way we can. It also means if we see them being exploited or oppressed, we say no and we try and stop it. Both of those go together in biblical justice. However, we also realize in this text that Moses, the law of Moses from God, guards against showing partiality also to poor people. Don't show partiality to poor people or to vulnerable people just because they're vulnerable. I mean, I, I know through personal experience that I have been both poor and wrong before. Right. I have been broke and a sinner at the same time. Anybody else done that? And if you if we live in our South Side community, we know that there are all sorts of people who are oppressed and who are suffering injustice. There's also a lot of us that are poor who are acting like fools all the time. Right. And if we foolishly show partiality in a way that has more to do with some sort of like whatever class warfare, Marxist rage against the machine than it does about concern for human dignity, then we are losing track of biblical justice. Where, where am I getting this from in our text? Look at verse three. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, this is interesting because normally what you hear is much more like what we read in verse six. Don't pervert the justice due to the poor man in his lawsuit, because usually the rich get favoritism, don't they? And the poor get neglected. But he's saying here, the text is saying the opposite can also happen in which you side with the poor, which is to say, um, this is going to what's the saying? You quit preaching and get to meddling. That's about to happen right now. Chauncey wants it. Nobody else. Everybody else is bracing himself. So if the Holy Spirit happens to convict you about anything, please don't hold me responsible. If any of us here are harboring bitterness towards privileged people. If we're prejudging people and saying that person is selfish or sinful based on the fact that they've enjoyed certain privileges, the Bible says repent. It says honor their dignity too as image bearers of God. In fact, impartiality is one of the main requirements of biblical justice. This means not punishing people who are innocent. It also means holding people accountable for the wrongs they have done. Even if we are personally close to them or if they are people of power and influence or if we have something to lose from holding them accountable or something to gain from treating them better than they ought to be treated based on their sins, which is why all this stuff about bribes is mentioned here. Impartiality, which means, friends, if I sin in a big way that hurts other people as my brothers and sisters in Christ, you're supposed to love me. You're supposed to yearn for my repentance. If I sin against you, you're supposed to. Offer me forgiveness, but you're also supposed to hold me accountable. And forgiveness doesn't mean there's no temporal consequences. The opposite of justice is not love or grace or mercy or forgiveness. The opposite of justice is injustice. See what we're saying here? See, it's easy to get fired up about justice until you read what the whole Bible says about it. And then you start to see that the line between good and evil, between justice and injustice, doesn't go around It's not like between me and my enemies. It goes down the middle of my soul, right? Justice and injustice are both present inside of me. What these texts are ultimately teaching us is that we need to treat other people in the way that God has treated us. Listen to the call for empathy in verse 9. You shall not oppress oppress a foreigner, a sojourner, an immigrant, 
And then God says, you know, the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You experienced what it was like to be vulnerable and oppressed. And God and his mercy and justice reached in and grabbed you and pulled you out of that. Now, if that was true for the Israelites in the Old Testament, how much more true is that for us? We all broke God's law. We all deserve God's judgment and wrath. And yet he, he and his mercy reached down into the pit and grabbed us and suffered for us, suffered with us in order that we could be forgiven. He treated us with dignity. He treated us not only as well as we deserve, but better than we deserved. And now he's saying, treat other people like that, especially the vulnerable, especially your enemies, especially whoever you are tempted to despise. Justice. If you want to know what justice is like, you ultimately look like Jesus. You look at Jesus and Jesus. You see perfect justice. Now, I'm about to wrap this up and say a few brief words about celebration. But let me before I finish this point, just say something important to us right here. As Christians, we should care deeply about justice. We should be fired up about pursuing justice in our community. And I thank God for the way I see that being lived out in the life of Christ, Christ Community Church. I've seen many of you bring widows into your home to stay with you. I've seen you take fatherless kids to give them rides to the doctor's appointment. I've seen you start after school programs to mentor those kids. I've seen you go into the schools to teach or start new schools to teach those kids. I've seen you at City Hall praying and advocating for justice. And for all of that, I say I want to fan the flame. It's biblical. It's crucial. We have to stand up. We have to celebrate um, great leaders like the civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and John Perkins, who stood up against injustice says everybody needs to be treated with dignity. But while we're doing justice, we need to walk humbly with our God and recognize that if we got what we deserve for our sin, every one of us would go to hell. We're in constant need for God's grace to forgive us and restore us, which means justice for most of us needs to start with how are you treating your spouse in your home? How are you treating that boss that you don't like? How do you treat the guy that just cut you off on the highway? Do I honor the human dignity of everybody no matter what? Now, I'm going to be real quick on the celebration theme because it's really fun. It's going to make us happy. And then we're going to celebrate and feast together. So I don't have to talk about it for a long time. But let me say a few brief words. In verses 10 through 19, the text teaches us that holy people who love God and love their neighbors practice justice. But they don't stop there. They also practice the lifestyle of celebration. Now, I said a moment ago that some of the specific feasts and celebrations that are happened here, the Bible teaches us in places like Colossians 2 that we don't have to practice those particular feasts anymore if we don't want to. But the principle still remains, which is why Christians celebrate Easter. That's why we celebrate Pentecost. That's why we celebrate Christmas. What we're doing right now is celebrating the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Amen. And we celebrate for some important reasons which are emphasized here. The, the heart of the text is what I read to you a moment ago. Pay attention, verse 13, to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Be a people who worships the true God and only the true God. And everything else in this text is revolving around that command. By the way, the, the verse 19 thing about not cooking the goat in its mother's milk is probably referring to the fact that... The surrounding Canaanite cultures would do that. They would cook a young goat in its mother's milk, probably as a fertility rite, which was like a pagan spiritual ritual. And so the principle for us is don't try to export whatever forms of spirituality that don't come from Jesus into your Christianity. 
Be faithful to Jesus alone. But what's emphasized here actually is the positive commandment to embrace a a rhythm of life that involves rest and celebration. Verses 10 through 12 talk about the Sabbath principle. We talked about that a lot a couple weeks ago in the Ten Commandments, so I'm not going to say a whole lot about it right now. And then in verses in verse 14, we read three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. Everybody say, keep a feast. Keep a feast. Moses is saying, you must, you shall throw a party. You shall have a festival. You shall celebrate three times a year. He goes on to describe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering. I don't have time to talk about those in detail right now, but in short... These are connected to the rhythm, the agricultural rhythm of planting and harvest and so on, in a way in which the people are both celebrating God's good gifts of creation. We got food to eat. Isn't that a good gift? We've got rain on the land and so on. But also they're tied to specific events in which God and his grace has acted to save the people of Israel. And they're celebrating God's saving acts. Now, what I want to say real briefly, since I'm out of time here, is this. God calls us to a lifestyle that is punctuated by rest and celebration. He mandates it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We very quickly see Christians celebrating weekly on the Lord's Day. And in church history, we see these feasts, these festivals uh, being practiced. And this lifestyle of celebration has very positive spiritual effects that I want you to think about how to apply in your own life. Here's a few thoughts. A lifestyle in which we periodically pause. To to not work and to celebrate is a lifestyle as Christians that is attuned to the reality of God's goodness. Joseph Pieper is a Christian philosopher who wrote a book on the theology of festivity. And the title of the book was In Tune with the World. In Tune with the World. In other words, God is good and all around us there's goodness in creation And it's easy for us to get discouraged by how messed up life is. But every now and then we just need to pause and eat a bunch of food and sing some songs and tell some stories to tell everybody and remind ourselves that God is good. So everybody say God is good. good. A life of celebration is a life that says yes to God's creation. Sometimes it's so easy to get bogged down by everything that's bad in the world that we forget the truth of Genesis That God looked at everything that he made and said, it is very good. One theologian made the statement, the martyrs never speak one word against the goodness of God's creation. People who were being killed by the evil and brokenness of the world, they're always saying God and his creation are good. We can't wait till he makes all things new. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. A life punctuated with holy feasts, with celebrations, is a life that remembers God's gracious acts of deliverance. It's a life that says, uh, even though we are weak and the world is filled with sinfulness, God has acted by grace and God will act to make all things new. So we have hope. A life of celebration, a life that pauses to cease from working and celebrate God's goodness is a life that remembers that God is Savior and we are not. Christ Community Church, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because we got a church which is zealous for good works, which I thank God for. The church is supposed to be zealous for good works, but we need to remember Jesus is the only Savior, right? Should we just say that together? Everybody say, Jesus is the Savior. Savior. We We are not. 
Now, God gives the good gifts of good works and the good gift of leisure. You can make an idol out of either one of those. If you make an idol out of leisure, that's called being lazy, right? If you make an idol out of good works, that's whatever, workaholism. And I've gone there before. But the Bible teaches us this wisdom. You've got to slow down. You've got to rest. You've got to celebrate so you can remember. You know what? Jesus would save the world even if I was never born. And even after I die, his kingdom is going to keep advancing. And I need to be refreshed by the humbling, liberating reminder that God is in control. He's the Savior and I am not. To celebrate is to remember that God's goodness is stronger, greater, and bigger than all the horrible evils of world history. And that's an act of faith. That's an act of faith because we've all seen horrible pain. But we're saying, I believe in the goodness of God as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think God's goodness is bigger than the world's evil. To celebrate is an act of hope that says God is in control. Therefore, all will be well when Jesus returns. And as such, it's also an act of defiance, which says no to all the false narratives in our world. That says the, the, the history of the world is determined by money or politics or by the devil. We say, no, the history of the world is determined by none other than Jesus Christ. Now, as we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper, here's what I want to say today. We've been looking at the law of the Lord. It's a mirror. Anybody see anything that wasn't flattering in that mirror? I got some honest but unenthusiastic yeses on that one. I mean, here's the truth, friends. We have all failed to be just. We have all been partial at times. We've all been indifferent to the suffering of others. We've all given into laziness or to a sort of self-reliant workaholic distortion that acts like we're the Savior instead of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means as we meditate on this word, we think of texts like Ecclesiastes 7.20, which says, uh, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But what that should lead us to is not despair. It should lead us back to the cross. And at the cross, we find a savior who says, I love you anyway. And we cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And at the cross, we not only find the grace of forgiveness, but we find the grace of power and purpose in which Jesus says, now I'm sending you out to live holy lives in the world. I'm sending you out to do good. And that's a life of joyful celebration. And it's also a life of justice in which you're bringing my truth and my hope into the world in Jesus name. Let's remember that as we go to the Lord's table. Bow your head. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your word, which is always good and always profitable. Lord, I'm I'm thankful for the people sitting in front of me and I want to be useful to them. But I know I'm always woefully inadequate to be a vessel of your holy and beautiful and powerful word. But I just pray that. Every truth of scripture that we heard today, that your spirit would continue teaching us. That every one of us here would put our faith 100 percent in Jesus Christ, the only savior. We wouldn't be trying to do good works in order to earn your favor, but we would rest in your grace, trusting in Jesus. And that as we enjoy that relationship with Christ, I pray that all of the scripture would reshape our minds and hearts so that by grace we would be people who live holy lifestyles of freedom and joy, of love and justice, celebrating your goodness and zealously laboring to share your goodness with our neighbors. As we go to the Lord's table now, just renew and refresh us in those realities about who you are and who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.